Good evening. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3. If you're new with us, welcome. Good to see you tonight. We are working our way through the book of Revelation here at Calvary on Wednesday evening. We are currently in chapter 3 of our study in this book. Last week we got as far as the letter to the church of Philadelphia. And as we said at that time, the church of Philadelphia wasn't a perfect church. But it was a good church. It was a faithful church. It was a church that was living for the Lord in such a way that along with the church of Smyrna, it was a church Jesus had nothing bad to say about it. So let's kind of go back to verse 7 and kind of get a running start on tonight's study. Verse 7. The Lord Jesus said unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, that no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, last week we got as far as verse 10, and that is a very uh, important verse. Many believe it to be a controversial verse. I would like just to uh, briefly review what we looked at last time. Uh, as we said last week, I and many others believe that this is a promise by Jesus to his true church, symbolic. Uh, Philadelphia being symbolic of his true church, that he would open a door of deliverance. That's what I believe the open door in verse 8 is all about. That Jesus would, is promising to open a door of deliverance and evacuate his true church off the earth, rapture it before God unleashes the tribulation period judgments upon this Christ-rejecting world, which we will study in chapters 6 through 19. As we pointed out last time, those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture of the church say that what Jesus is promising his church here is that he would protect it through the tribulation period and then rapture her off of the earth once the tribulation is finished. I don't see how that's the blessed hope that the Bible talks about. Uh, the blessed hope, the rapture is the blessed hope because it gets us out of here before God's judgment falls. Why should we be punished with the wicked? Uh, you know, we have made peace with God. We have received Jesus Christ. Why should we be punished with the wicked? Peter says we won't be. But uh, there are those who believe that the church will go through the entire tribulation and then be raptured after the tribulation is finished. They maintain that this verse, Revelation 3, verse 10, is not a promise. 
that he's going to snatch his church off the earth, again, rapture it, before the tribulation period begins. But that he is promising here to see us through it, through it, to, to be with us uh, through the great tribulation period. I want you to notice, though, once again, that Jesus doesn't say he will keep his true church through the tribulation period, but that he will keep us from. The Greek is ek, and it's a preposition in the Greek that can be translated from or out of. That he would keep his church from or out of the hour of trial coming upon the whole world. Look, if Jesus, the Lord Jesus, had wanted to express the idea that his church would remain upon the earth during the entire tribulation period, but that he would protect his church through it, he could have expressed that using different Greek prepositions. He could have used the preposition en, which is the word we get our word in from, or dia, which means through. But instead he chose to use the word ek, which means out of or from. Furthermore, to bolster the argument that Jesus is promising to remove his church before the, uh, from the earth entirely, before the tribulation period begins, he says in verse 10, I will also keep you, listen, from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Again, the word hour is not referring to a literal 60-minute period of time, but just a general kind of a time frame, all right? General period of time. The Greek word for trial, prismos, means adversity, trouble, trial, or tribulation. As we said last time, one scholar pointed out that this is a promise from the Lord Jesus to exempt believers not just from the trials of the tribulation period. In other words, not to keep us through the tribulation, but protect us from the trials. No, the Greek is indicating that what he is saying is he is promising to keep us from the very tribulation period itself. All of it. I believe that the hour of testing, as the King James translates that phrase, is Daniel's 70th week. Remember, as we studied Daniel 9, that in the Hebrew, if you use the word shabuim, week, in the Jewish mind, you could be talking about a week of days or a week of years. That's how they understand that word. We know from Daniel 9, the Lord Jesus was talking about 70 weeks or 77-year periods or 490 years that God has set aside to deal exclusively with the nation of Israel. Uh, 483 of those are contiguous, starting from the time God uh, gave, uh, that, uh, that God had uh, the Artaxerxes, I should say, give Nehemiah the command to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince, April 632 A.D., Palm Sunday. 483 years, or 173,880 days contiguous, uh, continuous. But when Israel rejected her Messiah, God's time clock for Israel stopped. With one week left, one seven-year period. It is called Daniel's 70th week. You can check it out in Daniel 9, verses 25 to 27. It's also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble because it's Israel is in view. The time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. We know it is the seven-year tribulation period. 
This will be a time wherein Israel will be the focus on earth. And the church, well, the church will be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Jesus here, I believe, is promising to keep the last day's true church from the period of trouble, tribulation, or testing, which is coming upon the whole world. This testing is going to affect both Jewish unbelievers and Gentile unbelievers. It will be a time of testing, as the NASB translates verse 10. Some of your translations may have the word testing instead of trials or tribulation. I checked several uh, today, and uh, sure enough, uh, some different translations handle it a little differently. The NASB talks about this time of testing. I will I will keep you from the time of testing which is coming upon the whole world to, to test those who dwell in the earth. All right, church is out of here. So what's going on on the earth? Well, it's a time of testing. For who? For both unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. They will either pass the test by repenting and being saved or fail the test by refusing to repent and remaining lost. Let me give you these. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 and verse 14. Revelation 14, verse 4. And Revelation 17, verse 14 describes those who repent during the tribulation period and are saved. You can go online. I'll have all this, these notes on there by tomorrow morning. You can go online and get all the scripture references so you don't have to all write them all down now. Those passages talk about those who did repent, or will repent, I should say, uh, during this time of testing and be saved. They're going to pass the test, we would say. Uh, you don't want to fail this test. And you only fail it if you're an unbeliever right now. And I trust everybody in this room knows the Lord, okay? But then Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, chapter 9, verse 20, chapter 16, verse 11, and chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, describe those who refuse to repent, thus failing the test and are forever damned. Again, verse 10, the Lord Jesus said, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, listen, to test those who dwell on the earth. Dwell on the earth is the same idea as earth dwellers. Um, earth dwellers is the more common um, phrase in Revelation. It appears 11 times, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Yes, well, who are these earth dwellers? Remember when we started our study in Revelation. We said the book of Revelation contains 404 verses. 278 of them tie back directly to the Old Testament, allude to the Old Testament. That's what makes this book such a blessing. Remember, Jesus promised a blessing to all who would read, understand, and do the things written in this book. One of the blessings is it will take you back into every corner of God's Word, especially the Old Testament, which a lot of Christians don't even bother with anymore, which is a mistake. 278 verses in the book of Revelation allude back to the Old Testament. Therefore, it should not surprise us that the phrase earth dwellers is found in the Old Testament where it first appears in the Bible. Let me quote to you something uh, scholar and author Thomas Ice notes, and I'm quoting him now. 
He said every global use of earth dwellers in the Old Testament appears in a judgment context. It is of special significance that both earth dwellers and world dwellers are used multiple times in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, often called Isaiah's apocalypse. Since one of the main purposes of the judgments of the tribulation are to punish Isaiah 26, 21, or test Revelation 3.10, the earth dwellers, it's important to know what this means. He said when we survey the 11 uses of earth dwellers in Revelation, we see an interesting composite that develops. Not only are they to be tested in order to show their true metal, chapter 3, verse 10, they are clearly identified as those who are persecuting and killing believers during the tribulation, chapter 6, verse 10. Many of the judgments of the tribulation are targeted at the earth dwellers, chapter 8, verse 13 tells us. It is the earth dwellers who rejoice and send gifts to one another when the two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem during the middle of the tribulation period, chapter 11, verse 10 tells us that. When the beast, or the Antichrist, is introduced in Revelation 13, it is noted that all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Revelation 13, 8 and verse 12. Thus, 100% of the earth dwellers receive the mark of the beast and will spend eternity in the lake of fire. During the tribulation, as followers of the beast, the beast, again, the Antichrist, the earth dwellers will be deceived by the false signs and wonders of the beast and will erect an image of the beast, likely in the Jewish temple, check out chapter 13, verse 14, while the target of the preaching of the gospel by an angelic messenger will be the earth dwellers, again, Revelation 14, verse 6. Not a single one of them will follow the lamb. Instead, they will wander in amazement after the beast, Revelation 17, verse 8, end quote. Author Mark Hitchcock adds, and I'm quoting him, the earth dwellers are unsaved people who, during the tribulation, stubbornly and steadfastly continue in their rejection of God. They are those on earth who are totally given up to evil and the hatred of God and his people. The entire horizon of their lives is earthbound, end quote. That's why they are called the earth dwellers. You see, the Bible is trying to differentiate between these earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth. When you see those two phrases, you now realize it's always a reference to unbelievers. And not just any unbelievers. Many unbelievers during the tribulation period will be saved, not the earth dwellers. These folks are so anti-God, so pro-antichrist, so deceived, so deluded, that whenever the gospel is presented, they harden their hearts, harden their hearts, they keep on hardening their hearts. They are different from the, from the redeemed. We are not called earth dwellers, we're called pilgrims and sojourners. But guys, once again, I believe that in verse 10, Jesus is promising to keep the last day's true church from the period of trouble or tribulation. In other words, to keep us from the entire tribulation period, which is coming upon the whole world. At this point, I really like what 
Uh, Henry Morris, who wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, he said this, and I quote, he said, post-tribulationists reject this conclusion, contending there is no reason why Christians in the last generation deserve to escape the great tribulation. The fact is, Morris said, however, that Christians in every other generation have escaped the great tribulation, so there is no reason why the last generation should be singled out for participation in it, end quote. That's a good point. Think about that for a minute, right? Now, guys, listen. Jesus likened this coming tribulation period judgment to Noah's flood. Noah's flood was the first judgment of God upon the whole world. Turn to Matthew 24. Jesus himself likens Noah's flood to this coming great tribulation. They are both worldwide judgments. Notice in verse 10 that the Holy Spirit makes it a point. Well, Jesus is speaking, so he didn't need any help from the Holy Spirit. But um, to make it a point, the Lord did to say this judgment was coming upon the whole world. The whole world. Jesus likens Noah's flood judgment to this coming tribulation period judgment. Verse 37. Jesus said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they were completely oblivious to what was about to come. Noah had been preaching coming judgment for 120 years while the ark sat in his driveway, while him and his sons built it. He was preaching for all that time. But they were so hard-hearted, it was going in one or another. They were laughing, mocking him, you know. So they were completely oblivious, Jesus said. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Just the idea is business as usual, okay? Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. They were caught off guard. They shouldn't have been, but they were. Completely caught off guard so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's talking about the great tribulation that will precede his second coming. People are going to be oblivious for the most part. There will be no lack of preaching the truth. I mean, God has given us more ways to get the word of God into people's hearts today than ever before in history. There is no excuse. And then on top of it, in Revelation chapter 14, he's going to send an angel that will go through the entire world preaching the gospel so that nobody can say, I didn't hear. It's not fairies judging me. Everyone will have heard the truth. But I want you to see how the Lord compares these two judgments. They're, they're very similar is what he was talking about, right? Right? In Genesis, guys, at the time of the flood, again, God's first worldwide judgment, three groups of people are mentioned, actually two groups in a, per, in a person, all right? Three groups, I'll just put it that, are mentioned concerning God's first worldwide judgment, Noah's flood. Unbelievers who perished in the flood, Noah and his family who were preserved through the flood, and then Enoch 
who was taken, raptured to heaven before the flood. The tribulation period is another judgment coming upon the whole world. And again in scripture, scriptures talk about three groups in relation to this final worldwide judgment. Unbelievers who will perish in this judgment. Believing Jews who will be preserved through this judgment. 144,000 Jews sealed by God with a mark on their forehead. And then the church who will be raptured to heaven before the judgment. Guys, Enoch is a type of the church. Enoch, that's been common knowledge for many, many years. Enoch is being lifted up in Genesis as a type of the church. And the question we ask with tongue in cheek, was Enoch raptured mid-flood or post-flood? No, he was raptured pre-flood. Just like the church will be raptured pre-trib. Before the final worldwide judgment begins. Now look, we have a lot more to say about the timing of the rapture when we get to chapter 4. So hang in there. Be patient. I believe that God makes it clear that a pre-tribulation rapture is his plan for and promise to his bride, the church. So hang on to that. Revelation 3, verse 11. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. The Greek word translated quickly actually means suddenly. Suddenly. Thus the Lord could come at any moment. And only we who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture can say it could be today. Mid, post, and relatively new position pre-wrath, those who hold away mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, tribulation, uh, believe in that, um, they have no recourse to say, but to say the Lord can't come back today because the tribulation hasn't begun yet. See, all the other positions are looking for the Antichrist. Only the pre-tribulational Christians who hold to that view are looking for the return of Jesus Christ. I think it's, it's wrong and problematic, unbiblical, to be looking for the coming of the Antichrist because your theology is that the Antichrist has to come, the tribulation period has to start, and at the midpoint or, or, or at, at right after the midpoint pre-wrath or at the end of the tribulation post, then the rapture happens. And Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who also wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, used to goad his good friend Walter Martin, who was the original Bible answer man and was himself a post-tribulationist. Just goes to show you can be very smart and still wrong. I'm not that bright, but I think I'm right. But Tunnel Gray Barnhouse, and I guess they worked close to each other. So he saw him a lot. And every time he bumped into him, uh, Gray, Barnhouse bumped into uh, Martin, um, he would kind of goad him by saying... <laughs> Sad day, sad day, Jesus cannot come today. Because, of course, Martin was looking for the tribulation first uh, before he could believe that, you know, Jesus was going to come for his church, right? Um, verse 11 again. 
Behold, I am coming quickly, suddenly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. The crown is your reward for faithful service to the Lord while you lived upon the earth. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. I don't have my crown yet. I, I don't have my rewards yet. Well, guys, in Jesus' eyes, you do. Because when he makes a promise to reward, when he made a promise to reward you for faithful service, in his eyes, in his mind, is a done deal. That is, if you don't forfeit your rewards before the finish line. Look, rewards can be lost. Christians cannot be. Rewards can be forfeited. Salvation cannot be. And guys, it's not enough to be a strong starter in your race for Christ. You have to be also a faithful finisher as well. 2 John 1.8 is the verse I go to on this subject, where John said, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, all the service you have done for the Lord and all the rewards you have waiting for you in heaven, be careful because you can lose them. But that we, may, that we may receive a full reward. Again, 2 John 1.8. You know, there's a great Baptist preacher, and I won't get into the whole story, but it's, it's awesome. But his name was Vance Havner, and uh, he was quite a guy. Loved the Lord. He grew up in the South. And I remember listening to him on tape, listening to him talk about his childhood. He grew up at the, uh, at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And he would talk about what a wonderful childhood he had. His mom and dad were strong believers. And, and uh, it was a beautiful place. Just the scenery was gorgeous. Just hearing him describe the, uh, what, you know, they, they would swim all day in the pond by their house. And they would climb trees and and just to have a lot of fun. And he said, my parents were really good. They'd let me go all day, do whatever I want. They only had one rule. And that was I had to be home before dark. As I got older, I started thinking about that more. And I began to think, you know, that relates to all of our lives as Christians, especially my life, because my folks are the ones who kind of instilled that in me. And I've applied that to ministry, he said. You see, I want to serve the Lord with all my heart. And I want to be home in the Father's house before I do anything that would bring reproach on his name. Before any darkness would overtake my ministry and years of faithful service would all be washed away. Somebody has said it takes 30 years to build a ministry and about 30 minutes to tear it down. There's a lot of men who understand what that means, unfortunately. I want to be home before dark. I hope you do too. He made it, by the way. He's with the Lord. And there was never a scandal. There was never any indiscretion that caused him to forfeit his rewards. So God bless him. And may we strive to be like that in our walk with the Lord too. Again, verse 12. Jesus, or I should say verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Let me stop there. 
What did Jesus mean when he said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, guys, pillars were pictures of strength, stability, and permanence. There were two pillars in Solomon's temple. One was called Yachin, which means he, God, will establish. The other was called Boaz, which means in him is strength. Both names signify steadfastness and permanence. As we said a couple weeks ago when we began the introduction to the letter to Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia was situated in an earthquake zone. It was situated in an earthquake zone. When an earthquake hit an area back then where a city like Philadelphia was located, after the buildings collapsed, often all that remained were, remained were the huge pillars. Jesus offers us this same strength and permanence. Um, I'll have you turn to this. I was going to just kind of, but I'll, turn to Hebrews 12. Because this is really an important passage with regard to what we're talking about. Coming judgment. And where you, where you want to lay up your treasures. On the earth or in heaven. But in Hebrews 12, starting with verse 26, it says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised. So the Lord's voice shook the earth. Now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, the things which cannot be shaken, may, that that excuse me, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, and with the reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And the idea is there is coming a day, and Revelation is going to talk about this. There are three earthquakes mentioned. In the book of Revelation, the final one is so powerful it actually splits the earth wide open. All right, But the idea is that God is going to shake this earth in judgment like never before so that every material thing is destroyed and only that which is spiritual remains. So if the fact that you know we belong to Jesus, we're going to remain, even if this body is killed, we are going to remain in spirit, we'll get our glorified body. But if we're laying up treasures in heaven, doesn't matter if this whole world is destroyed. We lose nothing. But those, and these would be the earth dwellers, one of the reasons they love the earth so much, many of them have amassed great wealth and much material possessions. And they don't want to give it up. Because someday God is going to rip it from their hands because he's going to shake this earth so violently in tribulation and judgment. Everything that can be shaken, everything that is made by hands that is uh, material will be destroyed. And only that which is spiritual is going to remain. So again, what do you want to invest your life in? Treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? It's a simple choice as far as I'm concerned. But again, Jesus said, I will make him a pillar. 
in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. The people of Philadelphia constantly had to leave their homes because of all the earthquakes in the area. In fact, after the mega quake of AD 17, many stayed away from their homes for months, living outside the city in tents because there were so many aftershocks. The people of Philadelphia were left feeling like their home had gone from permanent, in other words, you know, they were living in permanent structures, brick and mortar kind of houses, but that their homes had gone from permanent and stable to temporary and unstable, temporary that they moved into tents, okay? Their whole life was turned upside down. There was no stability. There was no permanence. That's how they were living for a long time. And, of course, it messed with them. It, it, it caused uh, them to have no peace for the future. Um, just that was the environment. And so the Lord Jesus is picking up on this when he promised the believers in Philadelphia. Again, verse 12a, he said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Never have to run out of you. You're a pillar in the temple of my God once you make it there. You're never going to have to run out. You're never going to want to run out because you're afraid of some disaster or earthquake or whatever. Guys, just as Philadelphia was a city where many people lived on the earth back then. In fact, we have a Philadelphia in America where many people live today. There is another city. It's called the New Jerusalem, where the people of God will live someday. And right now, our Lord Jesus Christ is preparing a place for us in the Father's house that will exist in this city. Turn to John 14. Of course, you know it. John 14, verse 2. Jesus said, in my, this was in the upper room the night before the cross. In my Father's house there are many mansions. The Greek is many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the rapture. That where I am, there you may be also. Of course, Jesus' reference to us living in the temple of God, Revelation 3, verse 12, or that we will someday live in the Father's house, John 14, verse 2, are both a reference to heaven and the new Jerusalem. Jesus is promising that once a believer, now, it's important, don't miss it. Jesus is promising that once a believer becomes, quote-unquote, a pillar, in the temple of God, in other words, once they've been taken by Jesus in the rapture to heaven, that that is a place of permanence, permanence, where they will forever stand like a heavenly pillar and from which they will never be removed. I mean, that's exactly what David wanted most in life, remember? Psalm 27, verse 4, he said, that One thing I have desired, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to forever behold the beauty of the Lord. Well, someday, that's exactly going to be our, our lives. Living forever in the house of the Lord and for 
ever beholding his beauty. And when God says, I make all things new, I believe he's saying continually new. It's not like you're going to be in the Father's house for a few weeks and go, I'm kind of bored. You know? Man, Lord, that was, you were pretty spectacular when I first got here, but I'm getting kind of bored now. I believe the first time you see the Lord, that the, the one millionth time you see the Lord will be like the first time you see the Lord. And having sung God's praise for a thousand times, ten thousand years, every time you sing his praise, it'll be like the first time you ever sung his praise. Nothing will wear out. In heaven, nothing will grow old. Uh, everything will be constantly new. People say, well, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to think of living on a cloud playing a harp forever. That doesn't sound very exciting. Sounds kind of boring. Well, who said you're going to be living on a cloud playing a harp? Where did you get that from? I believe that one of the reasons God made the universe so vast is because it'll take us eternity to, to explore it. And Revelation, as we're going to see, tells us we're going to be going on missions for the Lord uh, in, the, in the heavens, in the eternal state. You say, what would that be? I don't know. I'm waiting to see. I'm sure it's something very exciting. Yeah, but it's, the universe is so big. I mean, traveling at the speed of light is going to take us billions of years across it. No, because you're not going to travel at the speed of light. You're going to travel at the speed of thought. You're going to be some, anywhere in the universe instantly. Just think that's where you want to be, and that's where you will instantly be. Just like Philip was caught up uh, in the Gaza, and next thing he knew, he was standing in Azotus. It's just how it is, okay? Instantaneous transportation. All right, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Guys, the overcomer, the overcomer, which is the believer in Christ, true believer, 1 John 5, 5, who is he who overcomes the world? He who, has faith in, who put his faith in Christ, okay, the believer. So the overcomer, will have three names written on him or her. All right? Here they are. The name of God. Now, look, I'm not going to have you turn to it. You can turn to it later on. Jeremiah 23, verse 6 tells us God's name. And God's going to write this name on all of us. The Hebrew is Jehovah Tzidkenu, or Yahweh Tzidkenu, however you want to pronounce it. It means the Lord, our righteousness. I believe that's the name of God. But then Jesus said, also we're going to have the name of the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, from God, written upon us. And then finally, the new name of the Lord Jesus will be written on us. Look, you only write your name on what belongs to you, right? Well, so does the Lord. We belong to him. When we gave our heart to Christ. He took possession of us. And someday he's going to write his name on us, signifying, you know, that we belong to him forever. This idea of the name of the new Jerusalem. Uh, I used to have a T-shirt that had Chicago written on it. 
because you know that that that's my city. It's the one I relate to, right? You you know you you know you you live in Chicago, and you have a T-shirt that says New York on it. You know, we we don't really care for that. <laughs> you know, give me that, rip that off. We don't really care for that. We. We identify with our city, and there's a lot of pride, and there's a lot of, you know, it's and everything that's connected to the city. I'm a Cubs fan. I'm a White Sox fan. I'm a Blackhawk fan. The Bears, fan, you know, that kind of thing. We identify with the teams because those teams bear the name of our city. Now, someday we're going to have written across us, New Jerusalem. That's going to be our city. And we are going to feel connected to everything in it, primarily the Lord himself. Revelation chapter 3, verse 13. He who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, guys, the statement by Jesus admonishing a person who has an ear, let him or her hear, is a very important idea. So important, I would like to comment on it for a few minutes before we close. All right? I mean, it's not a profound statement. It's not a very lengthy statement. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is a very important concept. So important, I'd like to spend a few minutes looking at it, and then we'll close. For this, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Now, in Matthew 13, we are roughly a a year or a year and a half into Jesus' public ministry. He has been preaching plainly, simply, and straightforwardly all that time. Many have believed in him. Many others hardened their hearts. I'm thinking primarily of the Jewish leadership, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. And so chapter 13 begins, Matthew 13, verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And a great multitudes, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. That was the very hard walking path that people would walk between the fields on, like concrete. It was so beaten down from foot traffic. Some of the seed fell on the wayside, or, uh, by the wayside, or on the wayside, really. And the birds came and devoured these seeds. Some of the seeds fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others, others of these seeds, fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, guys, this parable in and of itself is profoundly important to understand. I don't have time to get into it tonight, 
So you can go to our website, daybydayradio.org, daybydayradio.org, and um, go into the topical uh, studies section and look for the um, study we did uh, from Matthew 13 called The Seven Kingdom Parables of Jesus. It's worth your time because this one is very, they're all important. This one is very important that you understand it, okay? However, for our purposes tonight, I want to key in on verse 9 of Matthew 13, where Jesus admonished those present, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Same thing he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 13. Again, verse 10 now, Matthew 13. And the disciples came to him. Now, this is privately now. Uh, they were living in a house, and they came to him at the end of the day when they had stopped uh, ministering in public. And they asked the Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? See, the idea was they're confused. He had been talking very plainly for the last year, year and a half, and now he's gone kind of cryptic. He's talking in parables. And they can't understand why the departure from the simple straightforward to now where it's like he's kind of gone underground. He's speaking in code, in a sense. And here's what Jesus answered. He said, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To the, the them would be all the hard-hearted, obstinate unbelievers who don't really want to hear the truth. They don't really... So why they follow Jesus around? To hopefully find something they can accuse him with. They weren't really looking to learn anything from it. Okay? And so now he says, and I'm thinking primarily of the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. Sadducees and so on. But he says, you know, it's not given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom. It's given to you, though. He said in verse 12, For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore... I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, guys, let me paraphrase what I believe Jesus Christ is saying here. Here's what I believe he's saying. I'll paraphrase. He is saying, if anyone receives the truth of God and desires to obey it, to that person the Holy Spirit will give more truth and the ability to understand it, and they will have an abundance of God's truth in their hearts. But whoever despises God's truth and does not receive it, the Holy Spirit will take from their heart what little truth they were given. Think of the birds that snatch up the seed. We know the seed was the word of God. And some of, them, some of the seed fell in this very hard wayside soil like concrete, couldn't penetrate, much too hard. So eventually the birds swooped down and ate the seeds from the path. And that's what Jesus had in mind when he gave the parable of the sower. Therefore, he goes on to say, I will now speak in parables to those who are hard-hearted because they see the miracles but refuse to comprehend. They hear my words but refuse to understand. And then the Lord goes on to say that all of this was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet. Matthew 13, verse 14. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing... You will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, 
Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, repent, so that I should heal them, save them. This comes out of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Here's the background. Here's the background. God sent Isaiah the prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah to warn them that God's judgment was about to fall on the nation for their wickedness. It was a time not unlike our own, which is one of the reasons I wanted to kind of touch on this, okay? A lot of parallels between Israel at that period of history in America today. It was a time not unlike our own. The nation of Judah was at a real low point, both spiritually and morally. In fact, we read in the book of Isaiah how he pronounced a series of judgments upon the people for their drunkenness, their debauchery, their idolatry, the way they dis dishonestly dealt with each other in their transactions and in their merchandising their injustice, and their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy because in the midst of all this evil they were living in, they were still going to temple and keeping the Sabbath and feast days and other religious duties, giving the people, listen, very important, giving the people a sense of being right with God when they were about as far away from God as they had ever been. They didn't realize it. Oblivious. Check out Isaiah chapter 1. You understand what I'm talking about. This false sense of being right with God was bolstered by the fact that the nation at that time was very strong militarily and very prosperous financially, which the people mistook for God's blessing and approval upon the nation. You see, on the throne at that time was a king named Uzziah. Now, Uzziah was overall a pretty good king. He was also a brilliant man. You know, back in those days, the king was the leader of the armies of Israel, just like our president is the commander-in-chief of our armed forces. Same idea. Uzziah was a brilliant military strategist. But where he really shined was he developed some weaponry that was so advanced and gave Israel such an edge in combat with other nations, nobody could stand against Israel. They defeated everybody around them. They were the strongest nation at that time all around that area of the world. And because of it, the people became very used to just putting all their trust in Uzziah in his wisdom, in his abilities, right? And God sent Isaiah the prophet and others to the people of Israel to try to reason with them. Remember Isaiah 1, come, God said, come, let us reason together, says the Lord, right? He's trying to reason with them. But while Isaiah was preaching this message of coming judgment, so please repent quickly. He was preaching about coming judgment if the people didn't immediately repent and really get right with God. They, they were going to temple and they had the illusion they were right with God, right? But they weren't. They thought they were. God knew they weren't. He saw their hearts. 
While Isaiah is preaching this message, it seems that the people, because of what they did, were saying in their hearts, the nation has never been stronger or more prosperous. You know, you're out to lunch, Isaiah. Long live King Uzziah was their attitude. It's interesting how when we put our trust in something other than God, he has a way of removing that from us because he wants us to focus on him and his ability, not put our trust in anything or anyone else. A lot of folks have their trust in their money. God takes the money away. They have trust in a lot of other things. A lot of Americans, we have trust in the strength of our nation. We have the strongest military in the world. We got the strongest economy, at least we did, is coming back in the world. It's interesting that just as Isaiah was delivering that message to the nation, and the people were saying, ah, you're out to lunch. Long live King Uzziah. King Uzziah died. Isaiah 6, verse 1. He died. And suddenly the nation was plunged into some of the darkest days in its history. It's amazing how you can go from this incredible, well, we saw it this year. How you can go from incredible prosperity and, and optimism. And it can all be, come crashing down in a matter of days. Please pray for our president that nobody assassinates him. A few weeks ago, he said something that really troubled a lot of us. He said, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. And I believe he was saying, there's a good chance I'm going to get assassinated. I think it's only the grace of God he hasn't been taken out already. Can you imagine if this president wins re-election and then was assassinated, what that would do to the country? You talk about plunging us into some of the darkest days in our history. Wow. Because there's going to be blood in the streets. Pray for the election. I think it's going to start election night. Some people have already telegraphed it. If their guy doesn't win in a landslide, it's there's going to be hell to pay. So, but God loved Israel like He loves America. And back in. Isaiah's day, as he was preaching a message of judgment based on God's love, please, please turn from your sins, he said to the prophet Ezekiel. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. Turn, turn, that I might not have to judge you. God, God doesn't want to judge. As we have said before, his default position is to show mercy. That's the kind of God he is. But he has to judge sin. If people refuse to repent, and that's what happened with Israel, right? Even though uh, Isaiah and others were preaching, co coming judgment, repent, turn from your idolatry and your immorality and your wickedness right now because the Babylonians are coming. Jeremiah was screaming this later on. Even as Jeremiah, of course, Isaiah was talking mostly about the coming Assyrian invasion. 116 years later, Jeremiah about the coming Babylonian invasion uh, against the southern kingdom, Syria of the northern kingdom. The people of Israel still refused to repent. 
They refused to get their lives right, the nation right, with God. And so God said to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, Isaiah, go tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. In other words, guys, God told Isaiah to keep preaching. He keeps telling me, keep preaching. A lot of guys, gals, radio, TV, they keep preaching. God told Isaiah to keep preaching, but now the Lord said, that those with hard hearts would no longer be able to understand because their judgment was unavoidable. It was inevitable. Are we there yet? Hopefully not. We're getting there. Of course, this was exactly what Jesus was now doing by speaking in parables in Matthew 13. These parables were a similar form of judgment on the religious leaders of Israel primarily, primarily in their hard-hearted unbelief, but it was also a warning to the nation or a message to the nation in general. It wasn't just the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and, uh, and, uh, and those that were hard-hearted towards Jesus' message. There was a lot of other folks that were also hard-hearted, didn't want to hear it. So this was for the nation in general. By contrast, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, He said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The disciples were tremendously privileged is what Jesus was saying because they were seeing what many of God's prophets, good prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, and many other righteous people in the Old Testament had longed to see but never did see the arrival of the Messiah, to see his miracles, and to hear with their own ears his awe-inspiring words. Jesus' disciples heard the same truths as did the religious leaders of Israel. But the difference was Jesus' disciples were open-hearted and the others were hard-hearted. Especially these religious leaders of Israel. The two responses was totally different. Again, disciples saw and believed the leaders of Israel saw and rejected. And because the leaders turned from the light that was given to them, God gave them no additional light, no additional truth. But in fact now hardens their hearts to his truth, guaranteeing the nation's coming judgment, which happened in 70 A.D. Now guys, I believe that to fully understand what Jesus meant in Revelation chapter 3, verse 13, when he said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, to the churches, we needed to know and understand that background. In other words, when Jesus said this in chapter 3, verse 13, it wasn't an admonition to Christians, hey, start listening up. No, it was a designation. 
of those who were saved and those who were not saved. Those who are saved hear. Oh, we all hear. I'm not saying that unbelievers don't hear, but they don't listen. That's the idea. They hear, but they can't comprehend. Why? Because their hearts are hardened. I mean, unbelievers can come to church and hear God's word when it's presented to them. But if they don't embrace it with their heart as truth, well, eventually the devil will snatch it from their heart. Can't penetrate. Again, like that hard soil, right? A hard-hearted unbeliever comes to church. I don't know, maybe his wife dragged him or her husband dragged her. I've seen it before. I see him sitting there with their arms crossed, daring me to get through. Um, I just pray that their hearts will soften. I mean, because think about this. What kind of satisfaction is a person like that going to get when they wind up in hell and they go, I showed him. I stayed hard to the end. Nah, they weren't going to get to me. Yeah, right. That, that's no, they're going to be weeping, wailing, gnashing their teeth. Why was I so hard-hearted? Why wouldn't I listen? And they're going to have eternity to lament over that. That's why Jesus said in Luke 8, verse 18, very interesting verse, don't miss it. I'll read it to you out of the NLT, second edition, and we'll bring this to a close. Jesus said, so pay attention to how you hear. Pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, they're hearing and they're not listening. Even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. How do we know how we are hearing the word of God when it is given to us? How do we know if we're really just hearing or hearing and listening? When you hear it, do you do it? When you hear it, do you do it? Do you desire with all your heart to obey God's word? See, that will determine how you're hearing the word of God when it's given to you. Jesus said in Luke 6.46 to a bunch of would-be disciples, these were followers. You might say today they'd be like churchgoers. Many people who go to church, they're not saved. They think that if they go to church, they get some points with God. And so, that, you know, and then so, you know, I get my wife off my back, I'll go. But, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get anything out of it. I, they've already purposed that in their heart. They don't really intend to listen with the idea of, of obeying anything changing their lives in any way. That's why Jesus turned to a group of these would-be disciples one day and said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 7, why don't you turn to it as we close, but Matthew 7, verse 21. Because these two go hand in hand. It's the same basic um, idea 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't yet don't do the things which I say? Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then he says this, okay? That was the principle. Now he moves to the parable. Therefore, whoever hears, this he's going to show us the difference between how people are hearing. Some hear, but don't listen. Others hear and listen. And, and this is what he's going for. Therefore, verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What's he talking about? What is the house? The house is each person's faith, which is the outflow of how they were hearing. One person's faith was built on the rock. What is the rock? It's obedience. He who hears these sayings of mine and does them. That's genuine saving faith. It's not that we always obey everything Jesus said without fail. Yeah, we fail. But the general intent of our hearts as believers, true believers in Christ, we hear God's word and we want to do what God has said. That's the heart he's given us, right? What is this floods and wind? and That's judgment. On the day of judgment, the person who heard Jesus, heard Jesus' words and tried their best by God's grace to live them out, showed they had genuine saving faith, and the judgment was going to pass over them. They're, they're not going to be affected. They're saved. The other person, and these two guys could have gone to the same church as the idea, okay? These two houses, these two faiths. We have them right here at Calvary Oak Grove. We have some people that come here and desire to obey and live what they hear, and we have others who sit there, hear the word of God, same word, Preach from the same passage, they hear it, goes in one or out the other, they leave here without any real desire to do anything with it. He who hears my words and does not do them, this is the person whose faith was built on sand. Faith without works is what? Dead. James tells us, right? But works don't save us. They just indicate we are saved. Again, like an apple tree, the apples on an apple tree don't make it an apple tree, just bears witness that it is an apple tree. The good works that we walk in as Christians don't save us, they just bear witness that we are saved. That the fruit of the Spirit is coming forth from our lives because the Holy Spirit lives there. And of course, this kind of empty faith Superficial head knowledge as opposed to genuine heart conviction is not going to stand on the day of judgment. They are going to be, and, and that's what Jesus said here earlier. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the whole point. These people said they did all these mighty works. There's a lot of TV evangelists think they raise the dead every week, cast out demons, work miracles. They don't. They think they do, maybe. But Jesus, I, I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. The pattern of your life was disobedience to my word. Check out 1 John 3. How can we know the sons of God and the sons of the devil? Sons of God do righteousness. Sons of the devil do not do righteousness. And we're talking about on a day, daily basis. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That is a call to all true believers. We're living in a day when the church is filled with wheat and tares. And here Jesus is crying out to the wheat. The tares, they don't listen. And they only try to dilute what God has said. So Jesus, I'm telling all of you who have ears to hear, all of you who, are, you who are genuinely saved, hear what I'm saying to the churches. You're going to need this information in the last days. May God give us grace, right? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word, Lord. Keep giving us the grace to listen, understand, and apply what we learn, that we would be lights in the darkness, honoring you with our lives and obeying all that you've said. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing again these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.